Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 9. Some are rejoicing to hear that number. (laughs) Ezra chapter 9. We'll look at verses 1 through 4. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Let's pray. Our Father, open our hearts to the reading of Your Word today. Open our hearts to the message of Your Spirit today. I pray that You would guard my words, that I would speak truth from Your Scripture, that You would guard all of our hearts, that we would receive nothing but the truth from Your Scripture. You have told us what is right And so, Lord, continue to teach us. Continue to lead us. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the mighty. Amen. This week we come to the final section of the book of Ezra, the first part of the book book of Ezra and Nehemiah. You may not realize that Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book that was separated by the translators for us. This section that we're reaching today is also the hardest for most people as they read through. In this section, which encompasses chapters 9 and 10, it it is this section that provides the most disturbing questions in Ezra for many commentators. And if you've not recently read these chapters, I would encourage you to take some time this week to read them. Even a cursory reading of the passage will probably bring many questions to your mind that we shall explore in the coming weeks. But if you'll invest the time to read and ponder on what the Holy Spirit is telling us through this passage, you'll find it a goldmine of instruction. And you must be careful if you deal with commentaries, if you turn to those when dealing with these difficult passages, whether here or elsewhere, I've found some, some otherwise reputable commentators who have simply cast Ezra as a misguided soul, demanding too much from the people of God. They've accused him of being the first Pharisee, elevating the law beyond its place in the life of God's people. But I would tell you today, I think nothing could be farther from the truth of these last chapters in Ezra. Because these last two chapters in this great part one, 
I would suggest to you here are dealing with the great question, what does it mean to be God's people? What does it mean to be God's people? The second part of the book, which we know as Nehemiah, will also deal often with that same question in slightly different circumstances. But that's what, we're, that's what we're going to start today. What does it mean to be God's people? And so for the next months, indeed for the remainder of our time in Ezra, we will come back often to that question as we find facet after facet to illuminate our hearts with Scripture's answers. In the course of this study in Ezra, which has spanned three distinct congregations... I've occasionally been asked, why did you choose to preach through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah? It's certainly not the most common Old Testament book to preach through, with far fewer series than almost any book in the Old Testament canon. And my reply, besides that it's a book of the Bible worthy of study, has been that truthfully, I I had put little effort into studying the book in the past. I had viewed it, as many do, as an epilogue or an afterword of the Old Testament, doing little more than setting up what we know today as Judaism. After all, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is really a single book, and Esther, there are no great miracles to hold on to. No slaying of a giant, no resurrection of the dead, or survival of a fiery furnace or a lion's den. In short, Nothing exciting happens in the book of Ezra. The book is very quiet with God acting, but doing so through the hearts of kings or through protecting His people as they obey Him on their journey. There are no prophets active in these books, although we have references to Haggai and Zechariah. We don't get their sermons in the text of Ezra. Indeed, for most Christians... Every event in Ezra and Nehemiah is almost pointless. They rebuilt a temple that no longer stands. They taught the law when we know that we are under grace. And the section we begin today, there, is two, there are two chapters that deal with mixed marriages. But lest you think that Ezra and Nehemiah is just an appendix hanging usefully off the side of the Old Testament. I bring you the ever-fresh question we struggle with as believers in Jesus Christ all the time. What does it mean to be God's people? Because that is the message of Ezra and Nehemiah. That is the message that makes this a valuable book for our study. And we struggle with it just as Ezra struggled with it. We struggle with it just as Nehemiah struggled with it. Because we see in our world today all kinds of gospels preached. Every so-called church has an angle And people who claim to follow Jesus Christ treat the churches in their area like a grand buffet where they can choose what to believe, how to worship, and what kind of amenities they require. 
People who choose a congregation to attend based on the furnishings of the nursery or how polished the praise team is rather than on whether the Word of God is preached and taught faithfully. In our world today, those false gospels, those alternate gospels would tell us to go where the light show is more important than the obedience to the Scriptures in how we come before our holy God. There are preachers actively teaching that God doesn't want or expect you to leave your sin behind. That Jesus Christ came simply to wash over and bleach your sin without removing it from you. I saw this quote on social media this week. God doesn't want, need, or expect us to be anything other than who we are. But that is what the other nations were teaching God's people. That is the amalgam. That is the mixture. That is the iron and the clay that have been forced together and make neither a good metal nor a good clay. And so I ask today, what does it mean to be God's people? Do we really think that God saved us from drowning in sin only to leave us in the middle of its ocean? Did He simply bleach the muck that covered us in sin but left the stench? Or did He free us from it? Because my Bible says He freed us from it. And so that brings us to the problem identified in our text today and one that will dominate our thoughts for the rest of the book. The problem is expressed in verses 2 and 3. I'll summarize it by reading this. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. To many a modern reader, including those commentators who think Ezra was too harsh with the people of God, this issue feels a lot like racism. It seems to stem from an old-fashioned or an ancient preference for one's own race. And so like the pervasive issue of slavery in the Bible, it's viewed by many as either an embarrassing incident that we would now remove from the Bible if we could, or from the point of view of unbelievers, one more reason to view the Holy Word of God as an ancient work unfit for modern use. We might even think to ourselves that we would never find this an issue and congratulate ourselves on how enlightened we have become. To think that even if we harbored a racist thought, we would never speak it out loud. We're too modern for that. If you hear nothing else today, please hear this. This passage the concern about these marriages has exactly nothing to do with racism. Nothing. 
I don't care how unfaithful and misguided bigots interpreted the text a hundred years ago or yesterday. Followers of Jesus Christ must take the Scripture and ask, what is the Spirit saying? And through this text today, we will continue our journey to seek the answer to the question that it is answering, what does it mean to be God's people? The first thing about being God's people is that it's not about race or ethnicity or culture. It wasn't in Israel's day and it is not today. Yes, the text today, there is a list of nations, Canaanites, Hittites, and the like. And many of these are a direct quote from the law that Ezra had been teaching the people. We see forms of this list in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 11. And we see it in Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. But throughout Israel's history, we also see lauded examples of non-ethnically Jewish people who were not condemned for marrying in to the people of God. Indeed, in the lineage of Jesus Christ, at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we see two in one verse. You can look in chapter 1, verse 5 of Matthew, and we see, And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Rahab, you will recall, was a Canaanite woman, a prostitute in the city of Jericho, who protected Joshua's spies when they were sent ahead of Israel in their invasion of the promised land under Joshua. And Ruth, we're told, in the book of Ruth, was of the people of Moab. Indeed, even those returning with Ezra and his caravan are not chided for having taken Babylonian wives and Babylonian husbands who would have often been ethnically Persian. There's no sense in the report of these leaders to Ezra that anyone saw a problem with the marriages that had been made in exile. And I do realize that we don't have a whole lot of evidence that they had taken husbands and wives from Babylonia, aside from a few Persian names in the lists of names that we so often skip in our Bible reading. But I do ask you to consider... If those who were already in the land had so readily intermarried with the idolaters of that region after their parents had returned to rebuild the temple of God, what would have made those who had stayed behind in Babylonia less apt to marry those locals around them? But they weren't condemned. So if the commandment from the law of God is not about race, culture, or ethnicity, what is it about? It has everything to do with the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You can see it in Exodus chapter 20 verse 3 and several other places in the law of God. And you will recall that the word before in that commandment is not talking about comparative worth. It's not say, God is not saying you will have no other gods that you love more than me. He says in the word before, He says you shall have no other gods, period. Full stop. None 
other in my sight. That's what he means when he says, no other gods before me, no other gods in my sight. Because to be God's people, you have to be God's people. Rahab joined the people of God. She left her profession as a prostitute and married into Israel. Ruth, at the beginning of her story, declared her intention even before she met Boaz. She didn't convert to Judaism because she loved a man and wanted to marry him. You recall the story that Ruth and her sister-in-law married two Israelite sons of Naomi. And both of those sons had died at the beginning of that book. And Naomi dismissed both of them to go and try to find new husbands. And listen to what Naomi said to them. It says, Naomi said to Ruth, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And that is in the first 17 verses of the book of Ruth. She didn't follow even Naomi simply because of her love for her mother-in-law. She said, I am going to follow God. You can't send me back to those idols. You can't send me back to those false gods. I have found my home in Israel. Ruth had the choice. Return to her gods in Moab or follow the one true God in Israel. And she made that choice. The risk in these marriages to the idolaters all around Israel was that the God, that they would mix the worship of God with other worship for other gods. We see it every time God mentions it. I mentioned Deuteronomy 7 earlier. Here the reason that God gives Israel. He says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash into pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. You shall have no other gods in my sight. Time and again in Israel's history, we see this very warning coming true when God's people let a little bit of the world into their worship of God Almighty. That impurity causes catastrophic consequences. We read this morning about Solomon who started off his reign so well. He was the son of David. He completed the temple his father David had desired to build for God. 
He prayed for and received divine wisdom as a gift from God. And then we see the disastrous summary in 1 Kings 11. And we read in verse 4, His wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. To be God's people, you have to be God's people. And as we observed last week, too many people think they can follow God and follow the world. We would often rather hyphenate ourselves than declare our undivided loyalty to God. We would rather call ourselves Christian Americans or Christian conservatives to identify with a cause like Christian environmentalism or Christian progressive or Christian socialist. We have even had some who would wear the unholy titles of Christian homosexual or pro-choice Christian, creating a blasphemous mockery of who God is. One commentator put it quite well. He said, there's a spirit today which passes for broad-mindedness and tolerance, but which is really indifference to the hastening of God's kingdom in the world. It has much to learn from Ezra's immoderate godliness we are not a hyphenated people if we follow god we are his and we are his alone second corinthians 6 beginning in verse 14 says do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. The Spirit is saying the same thing in this letter penned by Paul as he was in the Torah penned by Moses. God's people are His people. Enough with seeking to be successful or respected by this world. Enough of mixing yourself with the idolatry that surrounds us. Will you be a follower of God? Then follow Him. Not for the advantage He gives you. Not for what you get out of it. But because of who He is and who you are as those who have been called by God. In Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, we read that Jesus went out and He saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And He said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, He rose and followed Him. I've heard a lot of sermons on that passage and the calling of the other disciples And I will confess before you today at least one of my own that speculates wrongly on why this successful man Levi would follow Jesus. They all speculate that perhaps he had seen him or heard him in the past, that he had been enthralled by his teaching. They have to explain why Levi would get up from this successful career and follow Jesus. But the point of the incident is not that Levi was convinced to follow Jesus. The point of it is he was called. 
The point of that is that he was called to follow Jesus and he followed. No extended conversation, no argument. He got up from the table and he followed based on the call of Jesus alone. If we are called to be God's people, do we follow Him? And if we are uncomfortable with this miraculously active call of Jesus Christ, then I tell you today, we are uncomfortable with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We saw it with all of the disciples. They were called, they weren't convinced. We saw it with Saul of Tarsus who was called on the road to Damascus. And we saw it in Lazarus who was called by Jesus. And he came because he had been made alive in Jesus Christ. Is there someone you know who needs the grace of Jesus Christ? Then pray for His irresistible call to resound in their hearts. Then we will see something truly miraculous happen. We don't seek that these days. We would rather convince, we would rather argue, we would rather debate than pray. For those who seek a mixture of Jesus Christ and the world, Jesus had these words for them. We see it in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 59. Jesus is walking down the road, and to another Jesus said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. These two had things that they desired in this world in addition to Jesus. The first wanted his inheritance. He wanted to wait until his father had passed so he could get his inheritance. The second wanted to have one last encounter with the world. Both of these had put their hand to the plow and looked back. Both of them wanted Jesus to adopt their ways instead of simply following Him. Last week I stated, and I will repeat it this week, the moment you follow Jesus, the moment you receive His irresistible call is the end of life as you knew it. For Levi, it meant he stood up straight away and followed Jesus for the rest of his life. For James and John and Peter and Andrew, it meant they left the boats and followed Jesus. It can be no other way. God would have it no other way. If we will be God's people, then we must be God's people. 
And it is through His Son, Jesus Christ, that we are enabled to do that. It is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we have become not His enemies, but we have been called to be His sons and daughters. We have been made alive with Christ. He has given everything we need to follow Him. Let us not be double-minded. Let us not be hyphenated. Who are you? If you are God's people, then claim proudly the title of Christian alone. Let's pray. Our Father, teach us to love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. Let us hold nothing back. Let us reserve nothing for this world. There is no blessing from this world. And our job in this world is not to simply enjoy not to follow, even at a distance, other gods, but to proclaim You alone, the God of all glory, the God of all power, the God of all grace. We are here to rescue people by calling them to the life that you have given them in Jesus Christ. We are called to shine your light and to glorify you in this world. And so let us do that. We ask all these names, all these things, in the name of Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us, our Savior and our God. Amen.